Pastor Xavier Reese, and the one true God. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 5, Jehovah was the only God. There is no God besides me. Listen, when you read Isaiah, the whole context of Isaiah is these false gods. And God is saying, I am the only one. I've cruised up and down, never bumped into the other God. And if you are, tell me things before they happen so when they happen, I can call you God. But meanwhile, let me tell you things that are going to happen so that you know I'm God. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Could you imagine the ability to tell the future? Well, in a sense, you do. It's called the Word of God. Today, in our ongoing study from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Pastor Xavier takes us to the past in order to get a better picture of the future. Let's join him for today's encouraging Bible study. Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 7. The message is entitled, Cyrus, God's Chosen Vessel. And so here the record of the call of Cyrus, the Persian king, to conquer Babylon is given to us, and it consists of three elements. First of all, we have the details of the prophecy in verse 1. The authority for the proclamation is given by the phrase, says the Lord, meaning Yahweh. Notice the word anointed. The Persian king that God would use to defeat Babylon. A pagan, if you will. See, God chooses who he wills, and whoever he chooses, that's his instrument. You remember back in chapter 10, verse 5? Assyria was the rod of God's wrath to chasten his own people. God called him, not only his anointed, but look at his shepherd, my shepherd. The phrase that is used for kings and rulers for the kings of Israel. Those who care for the flock. Those who are going to benefit the flock. Now God said he would perform all his pleasure. God is the one in control here. And he describes it in a twofold manner. First, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. Now we know, looking at history, that Jerusalem was built and the temple foundation was laid. Ezra, Nehemiah. Listen, this is hundreds of years before, all right, that he's writing this. Notice secondly, still in verse 1, God declared he would be the one strengthening and sustaining Cyrus in the conquest of Babylon. The phrase, whose right hand I have held, is significant in that the traditional thing that a ruler did in Babylon was to take the hand of Bel, his God, in the New Year festival and to affirm the authority of his reign plus the success of his victories. Here God says, I am holding your right hand. I am assuring this victory. Not a pagan God, not Baal. Notice secondly, the decisive victory of the prophecy is given to us. First of all, in verse 2, God would go before Cyrus to ensure the conquest. It would be God. He wanted Cyrus to know this. He says, I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut up the bars of iron. Now, according to Herodotus, the historian, the gates of Babylon were of solid brass and a hundred in number. Gates represent, always in the scriptures, security, safety to a city. And where there's no gates, then there's no security, there's no safety for the people. 
God would demonstrate to Babylon that the arm of flesh at its best is clay in the hands of God. That's good. Keep in mind that this is around 712 B.C. This would not take place till 539 B.C. Calling the guy out by name, giving the details, speaking about a power that is not even yet a power. Assyria is the power at this time. Remember, we've been talking about it. Assyria was the rod of God's wrath. Assyria is my instrument. Now notice secondly here, that God would give Cyrus the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places. The treasures of darkness and riches of secret places refer to those treasuries that were built for greater security without windows. See, your real valuable stuff, they kept only with one entrance, and they were solid buildings, no windows, no nothing. And the treasures of Babylon were of such wealth because they were the ruling empire of the world. They had all the wealth of Assyria, all the wealth of Egypt, they had all the wealth of Jerusalem and Israel. I mean, just unimaginable. The city of Babylon was one like no other. Babylon was located near the Garden of Eden region. Today it's Iraq. Its wall was 60 miles, around 15 miles on each side, 300 feet high, and 80 feet thick, extending 35 feet below the ground so that his enemies could not tunnel under. It was built of brick, one foot square, and three to four inches thick. The wall was protected by a wide, deep moat or canal filled with water. It had 250 towers on the wall, guard rooms for soldiers, 100 gates of brass. The city was divided by the Euphrates River into two almost equal parts, both banks guarded with brick walls all the way. It had 25 gates connecting streets and ferry boats and bridges on stone piers one mile long, 30 feet wide, with drawbridges where they were removed at night in a tunnel under the river Euphrates, 15 feet wide and 12 feet high. This is the city. By the way, it doesn't exist right now in this description when Isaiah is saying this. So you can imagine how ludicrous this sounds. And God's also said they're going to go into captivity for 70 years, okay? Notice 30 here. Still in verse 3, God will do all this with a purpose in mind. That Cyrus may know that he was the Lord. The word Lord in all capital letters means the covenant God, Jehovah. The title guarantees his covenant faithfulness to Israel. But also that Cyrus may know that it was he the Lord who called him by name. He was not the product of his own greatness. This is always a failure. When God uses people, they start believing that it's because of them. No. He was known, and he was to know that he was called before he was born 150 years. Amazing. All of this beforehand, so when it happened, he would know he was God. Isn't that the message of Isaiah? God told the Israelites, when you go into the land and you take those vineyards and you eat of them and you take the houses that are full and 
all the orchards, everything that I give you. Don't forget that I gave them to you. Don't forget that I delivered the kings of Bastion, of Og. It wasn't your doing. This is always the danger with the people of God or the person that God uses. Now, if God knows all, the future, all of it, and he's going before me to make it easier for me and less traumatic by his grace and his mercy, isn't it wisdom or would it not be wisdom for me to yield to him and obey him? Of course. This lesson of Cyrus is here for you and me. If God is going to go before and prepare the way for his people and use a pagan, God's going to go before me and prepare all those things. But I have to align myself with God's will. I have to seek him. I have to submit myself to him. Lest I take things into my own hands. In chapter 4, verse 19, Peter says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him as doing good. Listen, as to a faithful creator. In your sufferings and mine, we are to commit ourselves to him as a faithful creator. Why? Because he is. He has given to you and myself everything pertaining to life and godliness. Many great and precious promises to escape the lust of this world. So we cannot say we can't. All we can say is, I will not. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Everything's been given to you myself. I have to die to self. I have to say, Lord, you're Lord. You're the God. I'm going to trust you. You know the end from the beginning. I don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. I don't even know what the next minute's going to bring. So this is the decisive victory of the prophecy. He went before him. Guaranteed. But he's done the same for you and I. When he sat on the cross, it is finished. The victory's there. It is finished. Now, it's wisdom to let God go before us. Notice thirdly, the deliberate motive for the prophecy. Verse 4. God was going to do this for the sake of his people, that they know his faithfulness. He identifies them by the name Jacob, his servant, referring to the rebellious self-will life. God is not like parents here on earth. He's not deceived about his children. Have you ever talked to some parents and, 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 and they don't know about their children? They think their children are the greatest. And they're talking, oh, yeah, Johnny, this and that. You're going, oh, boy. <laughs> well, God isn't blind to you and me. He knows how dumb we are. He knows how self-willed we are. He says, Jacob. But he also identifies them as Israel, his elect, referring to the choosing of them to govern over them. He understands both sides. He desires to govern over our self-will. Notice he called Cyrus by name and named him for the task, though he had not known him. God is sovereign. He can do as he wants, as he pleases, when he pleases, to who he pleases, where he pleases, as he pleases. And every time he does it, he never violates a person's free will, and he never is unjust. Because he's the God who is eternal. He is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, and he has foreknowledge. He knows everything. And therefore, he's the epitome of perfection. Is it not wisdom to yield to such a God, the only true God? Of 
course it is. Oh, but you don't know my wife. You know my husband. God does. Is your wife bigger than God? Your husband bigger than God? Your rebellious little brat's bigger than God? I don't think so. Notice secondly, verse 5 through 6, God was going to do this so that Cyrus and all would know that he was the only God. That there's only one God. In verse 5, he says, Jehovah was the only covenant God. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 5, Jehovah was the only God. There is not no God besides me. Look at verse 5 still. Jehovah was sovereignly using Cyrus, though he had not known him. Now, how often do we see the, I am the only God, there is no other? Over and over again. It's almost like, oh, you read it. Listen, when you read Isaiah, pay attention every time. God didn't repeat himself so he can impress it with a fat book. The whole context of Isaiah is these false gods. And God is saying, I am the only one. I've cruised up and down, never bumped into the other God. And if you are, tell me things before they happen so when they happen, I can call you God. But meanwhile, let me tell you things that are going to happen so that you know I'm God. Here's the focus. Here's the emphasis. Notice verse 6. Jehovah wanted all to know from the rising of the sun to the setting that there was none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. This implies that this historical conquest would be heard of, recorded, and repeated. And you and I are an evidence to this as we study it this morning. And every Christian throughout the world, when they study Isaiah, when they study Daniel, as a witness to God that he knows the end from the beginning. He's the only one that can predict the future. Jean Dixon would be stoned if she lived in the Old Testament because she's not 100% correct. You have to be 100% accurate if you were a prophet of God. Notice thirdly in verse 7. God wanted all to know that he is in control of all things without ever being part of the evil of man. This is important. Listen how he finishes the section. He formed the light and creates darkness. In other words, he controls the day and the night. Why? Because all these other gods say, well, these are the gods of the valley, these are the gods of the hills, this is the god of pleasure, this is the god of the... No, 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 he controls... Now, this is the god you want to serve. The guy who turns on the light and turns it off, okay? He pays the electricity bill, okay? He's the one you want to know. In the context, it means that these other gods were no gods and they had nothing to do with light and darkness. And so many people are bound by idolatry and superstition, Hexes and, and, and witches and, and all this fear and, and mumble-jumble and everything else. Ensnared, enslaved, entrapped. Notice, he makes peace and creates calamity. Some people have a hard time with this. It means that he is the only one who can resolve issues and bring true reconciliation. We live in a fallen world, and even as Christians, sometimes we have difficult relationships. But when both parties are willing to die to self and give glory to God, there will be reconciliation to an extent. And sometimes things are so difficult that the only amiable reconciliation is just to be mutually forgiving one another and to have some distance between one another. 
And sometimes that is wisdom. But it comes only through him. It means that he brings and allows consequences and judgments to come on people due to their sin and their sinful lifestyle. He brings calamity. In other words, he allows the fallen nature in this world and its consequences to run their course. You go out and you play with sex, you get pregnant, he allows you to get pregnant and to reap the consequence of your sin. To get a sexually transmitted disease, to get AIDS. He brings judgment directly, even he's bringing, this is, this is judgment on Babylon. But when he does, he says, it's their just due. So when he allows these things, he is absolutely just. What's the repeated phrase for Isaiah? The Holy One of Israel. Can't make mistake. Notice he, the Lord, does all these things. This is the bold proclamation of being the only eternal God. The bold proclamation refutes all idols, idolatry, and polytheism. He does all these things. It's no coincidence. No one can oppose me. I'm telling you before it happens, so when it happens, you don't say you did it, somebody else did it, or it's coincidence. Now that's the God to serve. That's the God you want to follow. The motivation of God was his love for us but also to reveal himself in and through his son in order that man might come to know and acknowledge him as God and Savior. That's his motivation. He's a God who reveals himself. He's not out there trying to hide from man. He's trying to reveal himself to man. Paul the Apostle in Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he sent his son and died while we were sinners, how much more is he going to do now that we're saints? How much more? It's common sense, people. So when you get in those tight spots, don't freak out. Trust in the Lord. Seek him. For if it is for the sole purpose that others might know Jesus Christ as the only God, that God is working in me and through me, I am his witness. Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in, in, all Judea, in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It is through us that people are going to see Jesus Christ and come to know him. No other way. His church. It is imperative that you know and that I know and that we be persuaded that Jesus Christ is the only God. This is the central focus of Isaiah. How does Jesus finish the New Testament? How does he close it? Listen. Revelation twenty-two thirteen. 13. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Did he not say, I and the Father are one? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
This is the deliberate motive for the prophecy. That people might know that he is and he's the one in control. Let me read you. It's a little lengthy. Let me read you the history of Herodotus, the history account of Cyrus when he came into Babylon. Cyrus then advanced against Babylon, but the Babylonians, having taken the field, waited his coming. And when he had advanced near the city, the Babylonians gave battle, and being defeated, were shut up in the city. But as they had been long aware of the restless spirit of Cyrus and saw that he attacked all nations alike, they had laid up provisions for many years, and therefore were under no apprehension about the siege. On the other hand, Cyrus found himself in a difficulty. Since much time had elapsed and his affairs were not all advanced, whether therefore someone else made the suggestion to him in his perplexity or whether he himself devised the plan, he had recourse to the following stratagem. Having stationed the bulk of his army near the passage of the river where it entered Babylon, and again having stationed another division beyond the city where the river makes its exit, he gave orders to his forces to enter the city as soon as they should see the stream forbade, or in other words, no longer flow. Having stationed his forces and given these directions, he himself marched away with the ineffective part of his army. And having come to the lake, Cyrus did the same, and with respect to the river and the lake as the queen of the Babylonians had done, for having diverted the river by means of a canal into the lake, which was before the swamp, he made the ancient canal forbade or stop by the sinking of the river. When this took place, the persons who were appointed to the purpose closed the stream of the river and had now subsided to about a middle of a man's thigh, entered Babylon by the passage. If, however, the Babylonians had been aware of it beforehand, or had known what Cyrus was about, they would not have suffered the Persians to enter the city, but would have utterly destroyed them, for having shut all the little gates that led to the river and mounting the walls that extent along the bank of the river, they would have caught them as a net, whereas the Persians came upon them by surprise. It is related by the people who inhabited the city, that by reason of its great extent, when they who were at the extremities were taken, those of Babylonians were inhabited, the center knew nothing of the capture, for it happened to be a festival. But they were dancing at the time, enjoying themselves till they received certain information of the truth, and thus Babylon was taken for the first time. Our text in Isaiah has provided for us one of the most amazing prophecies recorded. The calling of Cyrus, the Persian king by name, to conquer Babylon through these three elements. The detail of the prophecies, the decisive victory of the prophecy, and the deliberate motive for the prophecy. This kind of stuff is for you. It's for me when we don't understand what is going on, when we would tend to grab control of things, when we would tend to be disobedient when we know better. He wants you to trust in Him. He's the God who created light and darkness. He's the God who's in control of everything. He's the God who calls people by name 150 years before they're born. 
He's the God who knows the end from the beginning. Doesn't it make common sense and wisdom to obey Him? I want to be His instrument in whatever way He wants to use me. That's what I want to do. How about you? Pastor Xavier Reese and the path to true success and purpose, obedience. And you can get the complete unedited version of today's study, Cyrus, God's Chosen Instrument. It's available on CD for only $4. And this will also include what Pastor Xavier taught the last time we were together. So once again, the title to ask for is Cyrus, God's Chosen Instrument, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please, it's helpful when you mention the call letters of this station somewhere in your correspondence. This helps us monitor the impact of this ministry in your area. Tell a friend about this ministry, and we'll see you for the next edition of Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 